Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you. The last time I was here, we were in a series called uh, Who Do You Say That I Am? <laughs> so I saw it. I actually, uh, I had my notes on my computer, and I went to print it, and I'm like, these are the wrong notes. So uh, uh, I got the ones for today. I am excited to be continuing in the book of Mark with you guys. Before we dive into it, though, uh, I want to take a moment just for us as a, as a church uh, to take a moment to pray for Tim and for Jaya, and, and I hope that in your like regular routine and whenever you pray, whatever that looks like for you, uh, that on your list of things that you pray for, that you would continue and constantly be praying for them and their marriage, uh, be, because it's, it's really important that, that we pray for them as a community of believers around them. So rather than just like normally one-on-one preaching is you stand up and you tell like a funny story and you get people like to like you a little bit, I'm not going to do that. Instead, we're just going to pray for Tim and for Jaya, and so just... I hope you like me. Let's pray. <laughs> God, we do, we do lift up right now in this moment, Tim and Jaya to you. God, I pray that as they are taking this weekend away and celebrating, looking back on the 13 years of marriage, I, I pray that this would be a strengthening time for them. God, I pray for your, your hand of protection over their marriage. God, I, I pray that as they lead the church and as they follow you, um, God, you would protect them from attack. You would protect them from the evil one, from temptations. And God, that you would continue to strengthen them and that their marriage would be a picture of the love that you have for us. God, I pray that their marriage would just be a beautiful message of grace and forgiveness and love wherever they go, wherever they are, and that that relationship would draw people to you. And so, God, as a church, we lift them up and we pray for your continued guidance. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would continue to strengthen their marriage, strengthen them as individuals. I pray that this would be a renewing weekend for them, that they would come back with fresh energy and excitement for what lies ahead. And, God, we pray for many, many more years of celebrating and looking back on that day that they made these promises to one another. And that, again, it would be a continued picture of your love. So, God, we lift them up to you. And we love you, and we thank you for your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before I get into the passage, I want to do just kind of a quick flyover of the Bible. I have, in my office, I have Apple TV. Anybody use Apple TV? Uh, One of you, great. Okay, for those of you that don't have Apple TV, my favorite feature of Apple TV is the screensaver. Because the screensaver... It's amazing. It has these like drone shots going over the ocean in like slow motion or, you know, in different cities and things like that. And it's just mesmerizing. I hardly get anything done in my office because of this screensaver. And one of my favorite shots that shows up is they have video from the International Space Station flying over parts of the world. And if ever you've seen a video or a picture or anything from that height, you can't see cities. You can kind of make out the shape of like, okay, that's the coast of California, and I can see kind of like Baja going down into Mexico, but you can't see cities really. You're you're looking closely because it's just such a high-level view. And then if ever you've done this maybe on Google Maps, then you start to zoom in, and it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. So what I want to do today is I want to start with this International Space Station view of the Bible, and then we're going to kind of zoom our way into the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to zoom our way into Mark chapter 15, and we're going to zoom our way in to a story and a person in the Bible who my guess is most of us here have never related ourselves to, yet might be one of the most relatable characters in the Bible. 
for each of us. So that's where we're going today. That's what's about to happen. First, let me start with the big 30,000-foot view. The Bible is different than any other book that's ever been written in the history of mankind. The Bible is actually a collection of 66 different books written by over 40 authors across the span of 1,500 years across three continents. There has never been a book like this. There has never been anything even remotely close to what we hold and we kind of take for granted and we get used to like, oh yeah, the Bible. Yeah, we should read the Bible and let's talk about the Bible. This is God breathed. That men didn't just get together. You can't do that over the span of 1,500 years and be like, let's make something up. People will read it in the future and they'll think they're following, you know, like this is clearly has a divine stamp all over it. And yet you have these 66 books over 40 authors across 1,500 years, and yet there's a thread that holds it all together, and it's the person of Jesus. The entire Bible is God's story. And the beautiful thing about this story is you and I are in it. It's the story of the greatest rescue mission that ever has taken place or ever will take place. Your Bible's broken up into two parts. You have the Old Testament. That's before Jesus, humanly speaking. And so you have the Old Testament. It's the story of God calling the Jewish people and God making promises through the prophets that he's gonna send a savior. It begins with the story of the first man and first woman. And they have a choice. They can choose to follow God or they can choose to reject God. For there to be love, there has to be a choice. Otherwise, it's just forced servitude. They had a choice and they chose to reject God By eating of the one tree that God said, don't eat of that. If you do, surely you will die. They ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now sin entered into the story. But God wasn't done with us yet. And the entire Old Testament, if I had to sum up the entire Old Testament in one phrase, here's how I would sum up the entire Old Testament. A savior is coming. That's the story of the Old Testament. You should still read it. You can't just take the cliff note version and be like, all right, that's good. He already told me, a savior's coming, I got it. No, there's a lot more in there. But if I had to just sum it up, the Old Testament is a savior is coming. The New Testament, if I had to sum it up in one phrase, it's a savior has come. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the thread, the glue that holds the whole story together. And going back to that garden story of Adam and Eve, there was this separation because of sin between Mankind in between God. And ever since that separation, mankind has been trying two different things because we know deep down within us, there is this void. There is something missing. And so we try one of two different things. And this has been true of human history. This is true of each and every one of us. And if you've said yes to following Jesus, you'd say, yeah, no, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. You will tend to drift towards one of these two things. One thing that we try to do is we continue the rebellion. Ever since Adam and Eve, the separation that took place, some people have gone the route of rebellion. Like, I'm just gonna try and live the way I wanna live. I wanna have as much fun as I possibly can. I wanna enjoy my life. And maybe if I just chase after all these different things, all these pleasures of life, then maybe I will fill this void inside of me. Then maybe I can satisfy this desire that's broken because of this gap between us and the God who created us, who loves us and made us for a relationship with him. Maybe rebellion will satisfy those desires, yet if you do just a quick survey of humanity, you'll see that that doesn't actually accomplish what it promises. And so some of us, we've gone the rebellion route. Some of us, we've gone, you know what? I know what we need to do. We need to go the religion route. 
Rather than running from God, let's try and work our way to God. Let's try and do all these things and be a good enough person. Let's see if we can just maybe check enough boxes off the list that we can work our way to God. But here's the problem. None of us can keep the standard of God, which is perfection. Quick survey. Let's just go with the Ten Commandments. So the Bible in the Old Testament, you had some laws that God gave the people of Israel, and he said, I want you guys to live this way. I want you to follow these commandments. And, and there's actually 613 of them. We'll just focus in on the Big Ten. How many of you here, we're going to be honest in church right now, just a raise of hands. How many of you here have ever told a lie? Wow. That's almost all of us. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you just lied in church. <laughs> uh, how many of you have ever dishonored a, a parent? That's, that's one of the, the Ten Commandments. Oh, some of you are parents. And now it comes full circle, doesn't it? How many of you have ever taken something that, that wasn't yours? Oh, we even got some thieves in the house. How many of you have desired something that somebody else had and you coveted after what they had, wishing that you had it? I was just in California kayaking around yachts. Okay, I'm guilty of this one. I'm gonna raise my hand. Okay. So the religion route, the problem with the religion route is none of us can keep the law. None of us can keep all of these standards. So rebellion doesn't work and religion doesn't work. And so the goal here. It's not that we would all just give up hope and go, well, I guess, I guess we're out of luck. No, the hope is, and the goal of the law, the goal of understanding that rebellion doesn't work, is that we would give up hope in those things. That we would stop putting our hope in rebellion, we would stop putting our hope in religion, because we know if we really pause, we really think about it, we know that neither of those things work. But the good news, the story of the Bible is that it's not about behavior, bad or good. It's about a savior. His name is Jesus. Our hope is not in our behavior. Our hope is in our savior. I mentioned uh, I was in California looking at yachts. We have an inflatable kayak that my wife and I bought on the interwebs. And uh, we love going out on lakes and all that. And we took this kayak with us to San Diego. I was speaking at a camp out there. And we were in the harbor. And my daughter, so I have three kids. I have two boys, one who's 11, one who's 10, and, and a daughter who is eight and a half. She would want you guys to know that it's eight and a half. <laughs> and my daughter and I, we, we took the kayak out in this harbor. And, and we're going around looking at all the different boats and having fun and all that. And, and she's got oars in the front part of this inflatable kayak. And I have oars in the back part. And so we're, we're going around, and, and it's a little bit windy that day, but the waves, you know, it's just a little bit choppy, but it's a harbor, so it's really not that bad. And so we're kayaking around, and I had taken a couple other kids out at that point, so I'm getting a little bit tired, kind of exhausted. And we're kayaking around all these yachts and all these big boats, and just, you know, my daughter and I are having conversation. And, and we're moving at a, a decent speed, but we're starting to go into a headwind. And as we're going, you can tell because of the docks next to us that, that we're moving at a, at a somewhat decent speed. And my daughter says, Dad... I got this. And she says, I'm going to go ahead. I'm just going to row us the rest of the way. And I went, are you sure? And she says, yeah. Look at how fast we're going. This is easy. And so she says, no, I'll, I'll get us there. And I said, well, how far do you want to take us? And she says, do you see that buoy out there? And it was like 300 yards away. She's like, I'll, I'll take us to there. And I said, okay. And so I, I stopped paddling, and, and she's got the oars going, and she's just kind of splashing water more than anything. 
And, and I'm watching as the, as the wind is pushing us. I look at the, the shoreline here, and now we're actually moving backwards. And then we start to turn sideways, and I'm like, we are getting further and further from the destination. And she's just trying and trying, and I'm just, you know, enjoying the ride here. And then eventually she goes, you know what? I think I'll let you do it. And I said, that, that, that's totally fine. And, and the reality is, in that moment, as a father, it didn't bother me that she couldn't move us forward. It didn't bother me that she wasn't really contributing. What mattered to me was that we were together. As a loving father, I just enjoyed the moment. I just enjoyed us being together. And when we look at the story of Scripture, and and what we're going to see as we continue to dive into Mark, is it's not a story about our effort and how much we've contributed. In fact, our best efforts were moving backwards, not forwards. Yet we have a father in heaven, a loving father, and his desire is that we would just be together, even if he's the one doing all the work to restore this relationship that's been broken by our sin. A restored relationship with God is made possible not by what we do, but what he has done. He took our greatest problem And he made it his greatest problem. And then he solved it for us. Mark 15, chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 1, begins with this. We've gotten to the arrest of Jesus, and now he faces trial. It says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with elders and scribes and the whole council. Uh, The reason they would do this first thing in the morning is they would, all the people who were just moments ago, shouting Hosanna and Lord save us and celebrating Jesus as the Savior. They would be on the outside of the city. And here you'd have the religious leaders inside the city. And immediately as morning begins, they need to get things moving because there's a holiday. They're celebrating Passover. And if they're going to have Jesus crucified, they need to get things underway quickly before the holiday arrives. It says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. All the religious leaders are there. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate is a Roman governor over that region. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Brilliant response from Jesus. Jesus says, your words, sure. And the chief priest accused him of many things. They see that Jesus didn't fall right into the trap, so they begin to throw other accusations and other gospel accounts. Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in essence, are biographies of Jesus, telling the story of Jesus, what he did, writing to a specific audience. They fill in some of those gaps. That they were bringing multiple accusations going, we will throw whatever we must. We will bring up false witnesses. We will do whatever it takes to get Jesus crucified. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate's going, why why aren't you groveling? Why aren't you begging for your life? Pilate sees what's unfolding and he's going, "Just, just defend yourself and this is over. And yet Jesus 
barely responds, and then he's just quiet. And in Luke 23, 14, it says that Pilate declares to the crowd, to these religious leaders, Pilate goes, I've questioned him. I've investigated the charges that you guys have brought to me, and I find no fault in this man. In essence, Pilate declares that Jesus is blameless. Now, you have to understand the poetry of this moment. Remember, the Bible all ties together. They are celebrating the Passover. And the Passover, it was a celebration of God's great act of redemption, rescuing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It's the story of the Exodus. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt or uh, if maybe you're more seasoned, maybe you saw the Charlton Heston movie and, and you've seen this story of the Exodus. It's the story of God rescuing his people out of, out of slavery. And the key turning point in this story is wrapped around this this baby lamb, this baby lamb who would be sacrificed for the sins of the people on their behalf by his sacrifice, the blood of that lamb across the doorpost, death would pass over those households, but those that didn't have a sacrifice of a lamb in their place, when death came by and they were weighed and measured, they would be found wanting and there would be a loss of the firstborn son. There would be an account for the sin of that household. And so on this day that they're celebrating, the day that God's judgment passed over the people of Israel, and because of that, Pharaoh said, you guys need to get out of here after he lost his son, and all of Egypt had all this great wailing because they didn't have a sacrifice on their behalf. That is the day that they're celebrating. And the high priest would bring a lamb into Jerusalem and it would represent the, the people and, and it would kind of be a lamb on behalf of the people. Now each household would have to sacrifice their own lamb and there would be all these sacrifices, but there would be one lamb that was brought into the city that was selected by the high priest and they would inspect this lamb for days. They would look at it. They would make sure that there was no fault. It must be a blameless lamb. And on the same day that they're going, yes, this lamb is blameless. This will be the sacrifice in our place. Pilate declares as he looks at Jesus, this man is blameless. Jesus is the thread that holds all of scripture together. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. I mentioned we're going to look at a person in the Bible who my guess is none of us have related ourselves to. Yet if we understand the truth of Scripture, if we understand the truth of what it means to be a Jesus follower, I don't know if there's somebody we can relate to more in the Bible than Barabbas. Now, all throughout the Bible, there, there's these little Easter eggs that God likes to put. And, and I love that if, if, you, if you're familiar with the language, Barabbas, anytime you see bar, it means son of. So when Jesus is saying, hey, you know, we're saying, who do you say that I am? When Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi and Simon, now called Peter, says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, meaning Simon, son of Jonah. And so here we have Barabbas, which literally means son of Abba. And Abba is an Aramaic word that means Dada. 
And if you read Romans, Paul says that you and I, by God's spirit, we now can call God Abba, Daddy, a loving Father who desires an intimate relationship with us. And so here you have this murderer who is called the son of Abba. And let's look at what takes place. It says, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Barabbas is a murderer. Why would you want this man who is faultless, who is blameless, to be crucified and this man to be re-released into society? Do you not realize the threat that he is to you and to Rome? What should I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now it's easy just to read scourged Jesus, but to understand the severity of what was taking place there's a man named Dr. William Edwards, and he wrote an article in the Journal of American Medical Association talking about the crucifixion and medically what would be taking place with the scourging and then the crucifixion. I'll read this briefly. It says, the goal of the scourging was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse and death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, there would be this whip with iron and sometimes broken pottery or bone the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then the flogging continued. The lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive the cross. The severe scourging, with its intense pain, and appreciable blood loss most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Moreover, hematidrosis, that's when he was sweating drops of blood in the garden, had rendered his skin particularly tender. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. So Jesus is scourged, he's beaten, his back is flayed open. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, verse 16, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, putting this cloak over his bone and muscle exposed hemorrhaging back. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. Now, I want to pause there. Because if you look at the story of Scripture, thorns show up in Genesis chapter 3. 
Thorns came as a result of the fall of mankind. Up to that point, Adam and Eve, they, they would tend the garden and there was animals and there was this beautiful garden that God had made specifically for them where they had dominion over creation and they would produce in the land and they would work the land and God was with them and walking with them in the garden in perfect relationship. Yet after the fall, God said, there's, there's some consequences. That sin doesn't just affect mankind, that separation, that it actually affects all that fell under mankind's dominion that God had given as an act of love, including creation. Paul writes that all creation groans. All creation groans waiting for the day that God is going to restore what has been broken. That our cosmos is moving towards entropy, that things are becoming more and more chaotic. And God says now the ground will produce thorns and thistles. And these thorns and thistles that came up as a result of mankind's rebellion, Jesus is now wearing as a crown on his head. Do you see how all of this ties together? So they put the crown of thorns on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak which at that point, the blood would have coagulated and, and they would reopen those wounds. And they put his own clothes on him and they let him out to crucify him. As this is all going on, the question I have, and we don't know the answer, the Bible doesn't explain this part, but I, I wanna know where was Barabbas? The, the moment that he's released, is he, is he watching at a distance? Did, did he get up close? Is he seeing all that is happening to Jesus because the scourging, the crucifixion, that was meant for him? I wonder what goes through his mind as he's watching an innocent man in his place, one who was blameless in the place that he should have been, receiving the abuse, receiving the beating, even though he had done nothing wrong. The reality for Barabbas, the reality for each of us, and, and we all just raised our hands, is that if we were to evaluate our identity, if we were to evaluate our lives, each and every one of us would be clothed in sin. That, that if, if I were to just take all of the sins, the things that you've committed, the things that you should have done that you didn't do, the, sin, the things that go on in your mind, in your heart, and myself included, and we're just to write it all out so all could see it, which is this is how God sees. There's nothing hidden from God. God sees everything. We would all be wearing this jacket that essentially says we are all guilty, every one of us, myself included. And Barabbas, he was 100% guilty. There was no question. His trial was over. And this was his reality. This is our reality. That when we stand before a holy God, all of us deserve that separation. It's not just Adam and Eve did it. No, no, no. We've done it too. And all this guilt, all this shame that we wear. I wonder if Barabbas was looking at Jesus going, you know what, that's mine that, that he's taking. That, that's, that's the beating that I deserved that he's wearing on his back. That's the cross beam that he carries on his shoulders. That was my cross beam. That had my name written on it, yet Jesus is the one who carries it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, talking about Jesus, 
who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that Jesus, what he did on the cross is he took the sin that you and I wear, he took what you and I deserve and he put it on himself and on the cross. He paid the debt, he paid the penalty for all the wrongs that you and I have done. And now you and I, we can stand going, okay, Jesus has paid that debt for me, but there's still something missing. Just that Jesus, by faith in him, by trust in him, he has now taken my debt for my sin. He has paid that on the cross. I still can't stand before a holy God. That's not enough by itself. See, because here I stand, and, and yeah, I don't have all those marks of my sin now that I'm wearing, but where's my righteousness? Where's my righteousness to stand before a holy God to say, yes, I deserve to be in your presence. Yes, I deserve to be in relationship with you. I, on my own, have nothing. Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. Justification is a legal term, meaning it's right standing. So on the cross, you have this incredible exchange where Jesus says, I will take your sins on me. And through his resurrection, not only does he take our filthy rags, not only does he take our sin, our shame, and wear it on himself and pay the penalty through his resurrection by faith in him, we are clothed in the blameless perfection of Jesus. This is the story of the Bible. It's this incredible exchange that takes place the moment we put our trust in Jesus that now when God sees us, And God sees everything. He doesn't see all the sin and all the shame and all the things that we're embarrassed of and all the mistakes that we've made. He sees the perfection of Jesus. It's good news. It's not something that, like religion, you gotta work and you gotta achieve and you gotta earn it. It's not about our behavior. It is about our Savior, that when we couldn't work our way to God, God in love and mercy and grace worked his way to us in the person of Jesus paid the debt for our sin, clothed us in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved. You don't earn it. If you earn it, it's a wage, it's not grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, in case you have any questions, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift. A gift is something you believe and receive. It's news. It's good news. You don't earn a gift. You don't work for a gift. You receive it. You don't work for good news. You believe it and you receive it. It's not about rules, religion. It's not about rebellion. It's the good news that Jesus offers us a relationship with God through this exchange. But you and I have a choice. Jesus, he's not gonna force you to make this exchange. If if you wanna continue to wear this old jacket, you wanna continue 
So let this be your identity. He's okay. He offers you this gift, this exchange, but it's it's a choice that you have. He's not going to force this on you. And the reality is for our neighbors, for our community, for our students who are coming to GCU next week, many of them are still clothed in this, trusting in their own effort, their own religion, or some of them, they're just all in on rebellion. Some of us are still that way. We're still trusting in our own goodness. We're trusting in our own effort, or we're just full in on rebellion, except you showed up to church, so that's pretty good. Until we say, yes, Jesus, I receive this gift, this exchange, our standing before God is unrighteous. The reason I relate to Barabbas so much in the Bible is he physically went through what you and I spiritually go through. That what he deserved, Jesus took on himself. And what Jesus deserved, Barabbas got. And now, for those of us who say yes to putting our trust in Jesus, we are literally bar Abbas. We are literally sons and daughters of Abba, a God who loves us, who gave his one and only son. Through faith in Jesus, you and I are sons and daughters of Abba. It's the story of the Bible. It's the gift that Jesus offers to those that would put their trust in him. Jesus got what you and I deserve so that we might get what he deserves. that we are adopted into God's family, co-heirs with Christ. Guys, this is so beautiful. This is news that is too great for us just to go, you know what, that's good for me, I got it. The grace of Jesus should compel us, and I don't mean this to be a shame thing at all. I know you guys are doing an incredible job telling people about the good news of Jesus, but let's never grow tired of that. Let's never get used to this exchange that's taken place in our lives if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's continually, until there is no longer breath in our lungs, do whatever we can to help people meet this incredible God who loves them and to put their trust in him. And if you're here and you're like, you know what, Robert, I've been doing the rebellion thing or I've been just trying the religion thing, I invite you to say yes to following Jesus. And I know that there's some of the staff and volunteers, they would love to talk with you about that if that's you and you're ready to put your trust in Jesus and stop trying your own efforts, stop trying religion, stop trying rebellion, but to start putting your trust in your Savior. Because his name is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I wonder what Barabbas did. I wonder what went through his mind. That's us. Jesus taking the penalty that you and I deserved so we might get what he deserved. God, I I pray for every one of us here. I pray that we wouldn't get used to this incredible message of your grace. Help us never to become just comfortable and accustomed with it. Help us to be just in awe. Every week we show up here and we see this cross up on stage, may it be a reminder to us of the incredible cost of our freedom that you paid. May it be a reminder to us 
of how much you love us, no matter who's sitting here, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, that you love us enough to pay the ultimate price for our salvation. Jesus, I thank you that you would be willing to stand trial, to stand torture, and to give your life as a ransom for many. Thanks for the gift of salvation, a restored relationship with you. We can't say thank you enough. Would you receive our our worship right now in this moment as just a way of us saying thank you for what you've done for us? And may our lives reflect that heart of worship throughout the week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.